Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 417 with my guest Lucy Bellwood. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, sexual dysfunction, and just simple everyday negative thinking. Now, the show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. I am not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an astrophysicist. (laughs) This is not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is uh, mentalpod.com. All the uh, social media handles you want to follow me at is uh, also mentalpod. Um, I want to kick things off with a happy moment filled out by a woman called Gattacinco. And she writes, uh, the first Sunday I stopped going to my parents' house for the weekly dinner. It feels great to get up on a Sunday in a great mood and not be anxious, ruining my day because I have to go to their house at a certain time. This is such a small example of what recovery looks like. But I was thinking last night, I was in my support group meeting, and I was thinking so many of the problems that we have in our lives is us going to great lengths to avoid the feelings of living a life where we feel cornered by the circumstances in our lives, the things that we have control of, but that we take off the table. Tolerating things that are bad for us. Now, there are things that we can't control that we have to learn to surrender to. But whether or not you go to meet somebody you can't stand 
because you don't want to feel guilty about not meeting them. That has a huge effect. Making that decision, that self-care is so huge. And I know because I, once I started practicing that, my life fucking changed. I changed. It's amazing. And I believe that when we practice self-care, we then eventually start to experience self-love or at the very least, a degree decrease in self-hate. And then life feels more abundant and more relaxed. I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. If you've never tried online therapy, I highly recommend it. I've been doing uh, online therapy with them for a couple of years now, and I love it. Uh, just go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental so they know you came from the podcast. Uh, just fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a BetterHelp.com counselor and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. Uh, I forgot to mention at, at this other survey, uh, any comments to make the podcast better, she writes, please add it to Google. I thought that the podcast was available on, um, is it Google Play or Google Podcast? I'm not sure exactly which which one it is, but this is a happy moment filled out by <laughs> a guy who calls himself Gordon, and in the parentheses, he puts, but it's pronounced fuckface. Gordon, you are already my best friend. And I just love anything that involves the word fuckface. Uh, was it one or two episodes again ago? <laughs> I think it was the one with um, with Courtney. Uh, we said something about Planet Fuckface. And then I was thinking, you know, it really should be, while there can be a Planet Fuckface, we need some place for Fuckfaces here on Earth. And I'm thinking that should be Fuckface Island. Because all the fuckfaces should really have to be with each other. And I just love the idea of an island that you could fl fly over and just go, look at all the fuckfaces. And then you realize they're dropping you off at Fuckface Island. Because this whole time, you've been a fuckface and you didn't even know it. I love the idea that somebody who is a first-time listener turn this podcast on and their kids are in the car. <laughs> and after how many fuck faces did they decide to turn the volume down or find another podcast? And tonight at dinner, they're going to say fuck face. And then that Spouse will have to explain to the other spouse why their kid learned the word fuckface in the car today. Uh, Gordon writes, this is his happy moment, I'm a comic book nerd. Wednesday is the day new comics come out. My local comic store has a live show on Facebook that I watch every Wednesday before going into the store to buy the new comics. I participate in the show via comments and I've come to know a lot of the people that work at the store. Today, they mentioned that they got a block of tickets 
for the Captain Marvel movie that they were selling at cost. They don't make any money for selling the tickets. When I went in today, they told me to make sure to get my ticket so I could see the movie with the group. I realized they meant, hey, we like you and you should come out to see a movie with us. I have a very low opinion of myself and I felt like for just being me. I have a very low opinion of myself and I felt liked for just being me. They didn't like me for buying stuff. They don't get commission anyway. They just like the time we spend bullshitting at the store and online. I'm a people, not a burden to the world. I love that, man. I love that. That just made my day reading this. That moment when we realize we are connected, that we're not outside the herd as that mean voice in our brain tells us. And by the way, this episode with Lucy is so good at, at talking about that inner critic in our, in our brains. And then any comments to make the podcast better, uh, Gordon writes, it isn't realistic, but two episodes a week would be amazing. It would just kill Paul with a crazy amount of extra work, and that's not worth it because we all love Paul. But the idea does get me rock hard. And that honestly is why you're my new best friend, Gordon. Is it, is it like the garden variety rock hard, or is it the rock hard where you can just feel a little bit of muscle movement in your butthole as well? Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Lost Three. Um, and it's pretty brief. Uh, she's straight in her 40s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, she was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. Uh, she's been physically and emotionally abused. And then any positive experiences with the abuser or abusers uh, in reference to uh, her husband, she writes, uh, we have two amazing children together and his family is very monetarily supportive of their extracurricular activities. So I feel trapped for their sake. Um and that's why I wanted to, to read this is this is one of the things that we do when we're in a relationship that we don't like and we're scared to leave is we come up with reasons to not leave that put the responsibility on other people. You are not responsible for how your husband acts and you can't change him. But you can change whether or not you are in a relationship where your children are watching you be verbally abused and you taking it, you absorbing that toxicity, them absorbing that toxicity, them seeing a bad template for relationships and boundaries and communication and respect. You know, they'd probably be okay if they didn't get to play squash, but they got to see an adult stand up for themselves and say, no, no more will I take this. And there's probably a good chance that their grandparents are still going to pay for their squash or whatever extracurricular activity I'm assigning to them. Darkest thoughts. I think about slipping Ativan in my husband's drinks to get him to leave me alone. 
don't put it on him because he will probably never change. Darkest Secrets. I found a porn stash in my parents' room when I was young and used to sneak in and look at it. It negatively impacted my view of how women should be treated and my ability to have a healthy sexual relationship. Um, Sexual fantasies most powerful to you, being abused during sex. I feel shameful for these ideas. Um, It's just a fantasy. If it's consenting partners, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Um, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my husband, you are emotionally and verbally abusive. I will not tolerate it any longer, and it will end, or this marriage will end. But to really say that, you have to be willing to give him consequences. Because if you say that, and then you tolerate it, he's going to know the truth which is that you're not willing to do that. What, if anything, do you wish for? A happy, peaceful home for me and my girls. You can do that. They can have that at least half the time. Have you shared these things with others? I have not really shared the full extent of them. How do you feel after writing these things down? Hopeless. Don't feel hopeless. There is... You have more power in your life than you think you do, and you won't know how awesome it feels until you take that scary, scary step and reach for it and use it. This is an awful moment filled out by Sabrielle. And she writes, when I was 19, I was with a boyfriend that was amazingly understanding about the fact that I was still a virgin at the time and not quite ready to go all the way. After a full week of working each other into a frenzy, I finally gave in to the idea of losing my virginity to him. It was amazing. Yet at the point we finished, both of my calves decided to simultaneously go into Charlie horses. I told him that if this was going to happen every time, I would just not ever have sex again. That is fantastic. It's weird, too, how how that moment of climax in sex, why we can't keep our feet still, why it feels so good to just point your toes. I Actually, what I do is I point my toes and then I flutter my legs like when a ballerina is in the air. And I make my arms look very long and elegant. Um, I want to give a shout out to Third Love, who is supporting today's show. Uh, Using millions of real women's measurements, Third Love designs its bras with breast size and shape in mind for an impeccable fit and incredible feel. Uh, Just answer a few simple questions from Third Love's Fit Finder quiz to find your perfect fit. Uh, Third Love offers double the number of sizes that most brands offer. Cups A through H, bands up to 48, and with lightweight memory foam cups, straps that won't slip, and tagless labels, you'll want to wear these soft and breathable bras and underwear every day. And thanks to the 100% fit guarantee, returns and exchanges are free and easy. Uh, My girlfriend bought a couple of their bras, and she loves them. 
She got the cotton ones, and she said that they're super comfortable, and she likes how they look, and I like how they look. So, Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they are offering you guys 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash mental now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash mental for 15% off today. And uh, I will always put the links to um, stuff that we mention on the podcast. And then finally, uh, before we get to the interview, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself a manic buddy. And uh, she writes, on day six into helping my fiancé fight his bipolar mania, I was so fucking annoyed with him and tired of being strong for the both of us. I decided to try a new approach. I hung up my anxious distress for a night and said, fuck it, and started drinking with him. I really needed a drink. I pretended to get wasted and started matching his mood and odd behaviors. It started to work. He became concerned about my behavior, asking if I was okay. I'd say it was better than crying, and I got to be his manic buddy instead of his anxious and caring spouse. Flash forward to now, 25 days later, and I am writing this awful moment on my new MacBook Air, bought by you-know-who. As I listen to the loudest snoring ever, induced by a lovely cocktail of mood stabilizers and antipsychotics, I don't really want to give this beautiful computer back, but we have a wedding to pay for. Nobody's, Nobody's cool, cool and everyone's scared. scared. And, and we're, we're just, just all in this together. <laughs> there was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I'm one out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm gonna stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm gonna help you one day. People are gonna love you for that. It takes a lot of work. To heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Lucy Bellwood, and we just met for the first time a few few minutes ago. Had a little bit of a chat out uh, in the backyard, and uh, you are a uh, graphic artist. Uh, Cartoonist? What's the what's the term? Cartoonist. Cartoonist. Yeah, people get nervous. It's yes. fine. We won't bite. You can say cartoonist. Um, you in the in the past you did stuff that you would consider yourself to be in, uh, or called yourself an adventure cartoonist. And your most recent thing, you are writing about your emotions, which you hadn't really delved into that that much before, and specifically the critical voice in your head. Yeah, that's right. The The new book that I have is uh, the product of a 100-day drawing challenge. So I illustrated a conversation between myself and my inner critic every day for three and a half months. Different times of the day, different parts of the world. I was traveling a bunch. Uh, but it's it turns out something that it's a character I first designed over 10 years ago. And it's something I'd experimented with throughout the years as a way to address artist block, basically feeling stuck and not knowing where to go from there. 
And doing it for three and a half months was really different from just doing it for like a 30 day drawing challenge. And it really changed my relationship with my inner critic and the way that I was dealing with all of that stuff. And I did it in public, which was an experience. <laughs> uh, because you were posting these things as you were, as you were writing them. Yeah, every day. And yes. it's a weird thing to make your emotional development the subject of somebody else's internet consumption, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I yes. don't know if you know anything yes. about that, running a podcast for years yes. about your emotional journeys and other people's. Maybe I'm just more curious bit. about what it's like to not have that outlet. That, yeah. Anybody yeah. want to call in? Yes. Uh, so what did you, what did you find out? I, it's interesting. People ask like, well, you know, after you did this, did you reach the state of Zen? Like, do you not have an inner critic anymore? And I think a lot of the time when people address concepts of, inner critics they refer to it as something that is to be eradicated it is a part of yourself that in an ideal universe you would never have writer's block you would never deal with self-confidence issues you would just be this like perfect embodied furious avenging archangel of creativity all the time and that's not that that hasn't held true for me and i think it was actually just a huge relief to do a project where i understood that in hindsight, the days when I was at my lowest and the days when I was at my highest are actually indistinguishable. The creative output is indistinguishable, right? Mm. I could draw on both days. It's They're just, just different colors. Yeah, it's just that one day I felt like I was the worst artist on earth and another day I felt like everything that flows from my pen is genius. And it reminded me that it's not that we have to eradicate that voice, it's that we need to cohabit with it. It's like having a sort of shitty roommate <laughs> that's such a great way of of putting it and and i also feel like that that inner critic is the grain of sand in the oyster yes and lots of people have brought this up while discussing the book too that you know if you just blithely agreed that the first drawing you ever made was the best drawing you've ever, you're ever going to do, you know, not just the best one you could do at the moment, but ever in the future, you have no inner critic saying, hey, this could be better. You could be better, you know, mm -hmm. reach more, go further. But it's contradictory because there were days in, in the project where the critic was the one saying, um, you're not doing enough. You should do more. You should do more, like reach higher. And then there were days where the critic was saying, you know, don't even bother. You can't do it. You're worthless. You should, you should just stop now. And, after a certain point, you start to question, like, well, wait a minute, which is it? You know, yes. you said I was the worst yesterday, and you're saying that, no, no, I should be able to do everything today, and can we just not just reach some kind of compromise? And, and I feel like that those are both sides of the same coin. Totally. Uh, and it's a way to keep us stuck in self. Yeah. Uh, I, what purpose do you think self And we were talking in the backyard about the difference between self-reflection and, and self-obsession and, and how would you um, categorize one versus the other? Boy. Well, I think something that came up in our discussion, I feel like you should call your garden the green room. I'm just going to put it out there because that's like, it's grass. And it's, anyway, um, Southern California though, so maybe not. <laughs> Increasingly less green. Um, but the difference between, I really love that you asked that question because I think that's at the crux of so much of the tension in my whole career is, is this too self-indulgent or is this process of self-discovery actually valuable for other people? Yes. And uh, is it actually also valuable for me to be reminded that other people are going through this as well? And that was a big part that I didn't really anticipate about sharing, getting vulnerable online. 
means that other people get vulnerable too. And I think this is one of the strengths of this show is that you are so giving of yourself as a host that your guests understand that there is a reciprocal space here Mm -hmm. and they're not being asked by someone, you know, to just get super vulnerable and not necessarily know if they're going to be held in a space that is safe. And every time we show our bellies to another person, um, there is, I think, an art to sharing the challenges that we're going through. And it's not that that's self-obsession. There's also, like, dumping. There's, you know, right. here's all my emotional stuff and, like, deal with it. Right. Um, and the Internet can be dangerous for that because it's really easy to gorge. It, it It is. And to forget that part of our job as uh an artist, I, I don't consider this art, but I'm thinking more of, you know, stand-up stuff yeah. like stuff like that. Um, part of, in my opinion, the, the job of an artist is to make your ideas accessible so that more yes. people can enjoy them. And so how do you find that line between uh, originality and accessibility? Mm-hmm. Um you know, to to make it mentally intriguing so that everything isn't just handed uh, to to that person in a um, you know ham-fisted kind of way. And and the other thing that occurred to me as you were talking about that is, it seems like so often we get so preoccupied with the artistic quality of something that we're creating, and we forget about one of the byproducts of it, which is something you're experiencing as you tour around, which is human connection and Absolutely. meaning. Yeah. Talk, talk about that. If Oof. you, uh, so, I mean, this, this project required a lot of self-reflection because, you know, it was a daily check-in. It was a mindfulness practice. And we talk about creative practice as this thing, but I, I really want I wanted at the outset of doing this, I had done one 100 day project before, but it wasn't as personal. And I found that doing something every day really is the definition of a practice that you show up for it over and over and over again, even when you don't feel like doing it and getting to do that in front of other people gives you the opportunity to see their response and having that live feedback in some cases is really damaging because you just need to like stay the course with your project and having immediate feedback can be distracting or it can be intimidating. But what I found was that every time I wrote an entry that delved into, to to my mind, there are two levels of vulnerability as a creator. There's um, easy vulnerability where you can say things that you're fairly certain are true about the human condition. I think this is probably true of comedy and performance too that you can say stuff that's accessible to a wide, wide range of people. But if it's too accessible, it loses the personal. And if you watch a creator or a performer do that, there is this instant thing that happens, this glue that binds people together. And that was what I was seeing day after day was that I would share these entries and it was heady across the board, sharing something and having a lot of people pile on and seeing this gathering momentum on this thing. Heady in what way? That people were paying attention and more and more people were paying attention. My follower count grew really substantially, especially on Instagram over the course of the project. And it was a thing, a capital T thing that people were looking forward to reading. But beyond that, people were sharing their own reciprocal stories. It was like, if I opened up, they opened up. And 
it felt like a trust fall every time I would come up to an entry where some days, you know, I didn't have it in me to do the easier entry. And the easier entries are still relatable. You, they can be about multitasking or social media or blah, blah. And those are things that you can say, this is vulnerable, but it's not like, yes, this is, this it's is not the thing that really makes me squirm. Right. Share some of the things that make you squirm. So the, the entries that people love the most, people voted for, you know, their top entries and, um, they were never, someone asked me what my favorite entry was. And I had drawn when I was, maybe not halfway, a third of the way into the project, I went home to California. Um, I live in Portland, Oregon now, and I went down to Ojai where my parents live. And my folks are uh, considerably older than a lot of other people's parents. Certainly my dad is. He just turned 79 and I'm 29. So, you know, most of my friends, their grandparents are that age. And I've known my whole life that I'm going to lose him sooner than everybody else, you know, almost everyone else. And that trip home was, there was a lot of stuff we're doing to the house to try and make it uh, reverse mortgage ready. We're trying to qualify so my parents can have a loan to live on and like retire on because they're both writers and their crazy freelance life is, you know, normal to me. And, and probably, your dad wrote the Highlander. He did write Highlander. Yes. yes. Um, that was his one, uh, his one big hit. Um, but he had a, a fascinating storied history and he's somebody that as I have gotten older, I've had to grapple. I mean, my whole life I've had a very loving and close relationship with him. And he had a father who did not approve of his decision to leave England and go and become an actor in New York, uh, hardcore. And they fell out intensely over it. And a story that he told me a lot when I was growing up was that his dad, uh, reconciled with him on his deathbed after they had like threatened, you know, disowning, like all of this stuff. Wow. And when his father was dying, he said to, he started crying one day when my dad was in the room and dad said, you know, what's going on? And he said, I don't know what to do now. You know, my whole life I've done what was expected of me. I fought in the war. I had this job and I think he worked in insurance. I never got to do what I wanted to do. And I was jealous because you did it. Wow. And I took it out on you and I'm sorry. What? And like, boom, you know, like that's. And he died, like, I don't know, a week later. And it just makes me so mad. I mean, I'm so glad they had that conversation. Yeah. But how fucking British is that, that he waited <laughs> until he was dying? Ugh, Did but, he have his foot on the neck of a native as he said that? <laughs> That's the only way it could have been more. God, yeah. If he was manifesting some horrible yes. aspect of colonialism at the same time. Ugh. And it, it actually, he just like was holding on and holding on. And one of the nursing staff took my dad aside and actually said, you know, sometimes men of this generation, they need to be given permission to go. And so my dad went in and said to him, you know, it's okay. Like, you can go now. We're going to be all right. And then he died <laughs> like 20 minutes later. And that was a story my dad told me a lot when I was growing up. And it really underscores why he has been so unfailingly supportive to me my whole life you know any any creative endeavor that i wanted to do he's been right there and it's been so hard to get older and reconcile the fact that he's also an addict you know he's also flawed and he's also declining now this thing that i have been clenching my fists you know just like bracing for impact from the age at which i could understand death is coming for me. 
And all of the bracing in the world doesn't stop that from hurting. It doesn't stop it from happening. And so there's an entry in the book. I can't remember what number it is. Um, that I went home and it was really a shock because it was the first time I had really seen the fact that he was starting to take a downturn. And the demon is saying, I, I went for a, a walk to clear my head. There's a nature preserve pretty close to our house in a river bottom. And there's all of these old vineyard stakes in there from where all these grapes used to grow. And um, I snapped a photo and I drew this little character, my inner critic, sitting on one of the vineyard stakes. And both of us are turned away from the camera looking at the mountains. And I feel like most of the entries where I'm getting into the stuff that is actually interesting to say, the ones that are really, really deeply difficult, um, I'm never looking at the camera. <laughs> I'm never looking at the viewer. It's always like I can't physically draw my facial expression while wow. I share this. And the demon is saying it will never be what it was before. And I'm saying that doesn't mean we can't be here for what it is now. And that's been the hardest thing to try and remind myself of. I'm really attached to home. I'm a big permanence junkie. I do not want things to change. I don't want to let go of the things that I love. And somebody said, you know, this book was really like therapy for you in some ways. And I said, yeah, you know, it's true. And it's not that I've reached a state where I eradicated my inner critic it's almost like I spent a hundred days talking back to this part of myself that you were asking what purpose that serves. And I don't necessarily, you could say it's evolution in some ways. It's this voice that's goading us to, to do more, be better. But on the other side of that is that that inner critic is this small, scared part of ourselves that is afraid. It's just afraid. And to be kind to ourselves is like the greatest task of life, right? We can be compassionate to other people mm. at the drop of a hat. It's not hard for most people. And so divorcing that voice and creating a separate entity for it and then having that entity lash out or act out or, you know, it's a toddler, right? It's just angry it it's and a- petulant and contradictory. And um, it just needs to be held and told it's okay. And I find that that voice has not gone away. You know, it's still just as loud. But there have been times I'm I'm on a book tour right now and, you know, I've been traveling for two months and there have been nights where I'm just sobbing. You know, it's too much. I'm far away from home. I'm worried about my dad. I shouldn't be on the road doing this indulgent thing. I should be taking care of him. I'm an only child too, so like the, the pressure is on. And I find myself talking to myself like I'm that inner critic from my book and, you know, literally saying out loud, like, I know that you're scared. I know this is a lot. And the feeling in those moments is like, I can't do this. I can't do this alone. And the lesson of the project was other people are doing this too every day, especially with parents. Like most everybody's got parent stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, posting these entries, every time I'd post one that was too real for me, those were the ones that people responded to the most. That's what I always tell guests when they <sighs> we wrap up and, and they're like, oh, God, that part where I talked about. <laughs> and, I, and I would say the more difficult it is to talk about, the more valuable it is to people who hear it. Yeah. 
That's undoubtedly true. Um, and it still feels scary. It's so scary. Every time. And I was saying in the car on the drive over here, like, I wish there were a point in life where doing those ri- like that is what it means to be human is to keep taking those risks and to keep being a feeling person in the world. And it's something that I, I take as a huge comfort that, you know, my dad gave me that gift. And even if he is at a point where I need to be the one giving that gift to him, you know, if I need to be the one taking care of him, I'm living it every day. Like it's a part of me and who I am. And it doesn't stop it from hurting, but it means that that's the work that I'm supposed to be doing. You know, like that's the full manifestation of what his dad was trying to pass on to him, you know, and that he did a slightly better job of passing on to me because he didn't tell me when he was dying. He like got around to it from day one. And yeah, that's, Walking into that pain is really, I, it's nice to talk about him because I just did a big interview and um, realized that I talked a lot about my mom and what she's given for me. And that's also huge. Like she trained as a therapist, you know, she's really the root of all of the emotional intelligence stuff that came into my life. But I read this huge interview. I talked to this guy for like an hour and a half and I did not mention my dad. And I realized that it was because, you know, it hurts too much right now. And it's... um touchy to get into but seeing all those other people echoing and saying hey this is us this is us like we relate to this yeah uh and seeing people relate for each other like in those comment threads people would chime in i'm sure you get this too that you don't even have to be present in the conversation it's like you're enabling you're creating a space for people to say i'm having this really rough experience and for other people who are not you to come in and say we hear you this is us as well like we're all here yeah, it it's I just had this image in, in my mind of like you lost in the woods and then all of a sudden you scream I'm lost and you hear nine other voices going me too. <laughs> and all I love of a sudden that. you're That's like exactly it. Well, yeah. maybe I'm just in a heavily wooded area and yeah. I'm, and I'm, visibility is poor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but th- th- those moments to me are I think if we get to have a deathbed moment. Yeah. Those are the moments that I know I will cherish. And I will say that was not a waste of time. Yeah. That was something genetically in me being tapped into. Mm-hmm. And that if there is any type of higher power or greater good or universal connection between humans, that to me, you know, the the feeling of meaning, purpose, and connection is to me, uh, the only thing that can really, truly quiet my mind and make me yeah. feel like I can just be present in the moment, not question who I am, what worth I have, where I'm going to be in five years from now, mm-hmm. that the crystal ball is broken. Yep. And meaning is, the it, for me, the only thing that keeps me from wanting to constantly reach for it. But Meaning involves taking chances and having difficult conversations and sometimes making ugly mistakes, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. revealing too much to somebody that's not safe to talk to. Or, you know, for me, maybe uh, uh, crossing somebody's boundary in in what I share with them or doing it at an an inappropriate time. Um, Those are those are the the moments that are hard to look back at and say, well, I guess that is a part of the being 
emotionally open and vulnerable yeah. is sometimes there are experiences that are, aren't ideal, but you can't do anything perfectly. No. And, and that's also something we were talking about in the car over here of, uh, like having this standard, this purity Olympics of like, surely out there, there is some person who has never made a mistake, who's never crossed a boundary, who's never. And like, we've all screwed up. It's my mom tells a story about a a child, you know, getting uh, some math problem wrong while working with their parents and the parents saying, you know, that's great. You're a kid. It's your job to make mistakes. And I honestly think that it's kind of our job being human to make mistakes because that is actually how we learn. If you get it right the first time, again, if you do a drawing and you're like, this is a perfect drawing, Michelangelo could not exceed this, you know, everything is fine, I'm done, that's going to be a pretty boring life. Yeah. And you're not going to be in the process of working through other stuff and, you know, connecting things. Was it somebody just told me recently that their their mother had a little sign on their piano that said, if you don't make any mistakes today, it means that you haven't tried anything new. And I thought, wow, that is such, such a great saying. Yeah. That is such a great saying. And as you were talking about the, having those conversations, um, and, you know, the obsession of wanting things to have artistic excellence and forgetting about the byproduct of meaning and purpose and stuff like that, it occurred to me that somebody who isn't creative for a living can still have creativity in a conversation they strike up with somebody at a coffee shop while Absolutely. in line. They can, um, there, there are moments all throughout the day where they can get that byproduct that we search for in our art, mm-hmm. which is connection and yeah. meaning and and it's really just a conduit. It's a tool. It is. Right? And music is a tool. I've been having a lot of envy recently, actually, of my musician friends because I've talked to them about being on tour in this way for multiple months is not something that many cartoonists do. Most cartoonists are introverts and like I'm kind of a fake extrovert. So I like this part and I like people. Um, and I've talked to so many musicians because they know what being on tour is like. It is a grind. It so is. And friends of mine who do not know that they hear tour and they think stadium show limousine caviar whatever musician friends are like do you need a place to stay can i buy you dinner you know how are you holding up do you need some vegetables right yes it is so hard to to eat healthy on the road or (laughs) even remotely healthy and god it's hard yeah It's it's so hard it's just burgers all the way down and you know you're always like drained after an event and you desperately need to eat something and you're just like calories whatever's here get it in me um, but yeah, I, the, the thing about talking to musicians is that I'm also really like experiencing music and I was just at an event in New York and, um, Amanda Palmer was performing as part of this like literary variety evening. And the theme of the event was that all the performers had to take a risk on stage. And for the musical guests, that meant they had to uh, perform a cover song and try to get the whole crowd to sing along. <laughs> and she had them turn off all the lights and she played Hallelujah and had everybody sing. And it was like, I couldn't even open my mouth before I was just sobbing and like sitting in the dark, crying with all of these strangers. And it was two notes on the piano. And I had this moment of like, God, music really is the best thing for that. Like, I have not read a comic ever that has caused me to burst into tears that fast or a book or a movie, you know, like there's something about it. And that's the beauty of it is that every one of those conversational 
connective forms has a different way of doing it. With a book, it's like this crazy time delay where mm-hmm. you write a thing and then a year later it comes out, but then someone might read it 25 years in the future and like their kid is going to read it, but then grow up and read it again and get something new out of it. And it's asynchronous and all of it is just, I don't know, I'm having a big moment of like being people in the world is the thing. My image of what it would be like in the future if I ever wrote a book is that I would be at a used bookstore as somebody came in and tried to sell it, but the person behind the counter refused to buy it. <laughs> because then, then they pointed to a shelf of like 60 copies of yes. it that were already there. Yes. Not because people had read them but on remainder. Exactly. Like, oh God, exactly. they've all got the black dot on the spine. Yeah. Give me some other moments that were, that were hard for you to... Mm. Um, <sighs> Uh, the, and, I think, and is your dad a recovered addict or is he still kind of, or would you rather not discuss that? No, I can discuss it. Um, it's something he's been very open with me about. Uh, he has, I, I believe this is something that I also feel like I've struggled with because, um, I know there are umpteen resources for children of addicts. I have never tapped into them because I think probably because of denial, honestly, growing up and not really wanting to say like, He's an addict. The thing that that strikes me as so frustrating is that, to my mind, uh, addict is like violent, you know, binges and like getting blackout drunk and puking on the carpet and like being irresponsible and um, abusive. And like my dad is not that person. I love him very dearly. He's very close. You know, he's very supportive. And it's something I've come back to again and again is like, how can you come from a loving, supportive family and still have this much pain? And... It's something, honestly, when I reached out to you that I was like, I have imposter syndrome about not having enough baggage to go on this show. Is that going to be a problem? And then I started thinking about it for two seconds and was like, you know, it's the weird thing about it is that you could be loved and supported your whole childhood and like nobody comes out alive. Uh, Well, let me just (laughs) tell you what you just shouted in the forest. There's 5,000 other people going, me too. Yeah. I've heard that so many times. I imagine that you had, that was the thing that brought me up short that I was like, you know, I bet he hears that every week. I do. Even from people who, you know, are coming in here with like huge stories of loss and trauma. Yes. And I have, and I have told uh, myself that before as well. What do I have to complain about? But yeah. it's it's not the cause of the the car crash it's how do we bandage up how yeah. do we how do we uh get into physical therapy so we can mm-hmm. walk as as best we can i think i've really weighed this down with metaphors and <laughs> i should just let myself out you're in a car crash with a physical therapist yes. they get out okay yeah um well, you know, is you, from what I know uh, about addiction, being a recovering addict, uh, alcoholic myself, um, just some guesses yeah. at things, because I know there are common effects that the addict can have on the child um, when there isn't violence, mm-hmm. when they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the classic ones aren't being checked no there's this subtle emotional damage right or not so subtle emotional damage it's it's the person the parent kind of being in their head a lot Mm. and the child feeling um there's just a lack of consistency in that parent being fully present with the with the child or of being fully responsive you know of saying like i would do anything for you 
And then you're saying, all right, I need you to stop smoking cigarettes because like it's going to kill you. And them saying, anything that. else. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, I'll try and then lying. And the rough thing, I mean, this is both rough and not rough, is that I can understand it from a certain perspective. Yeah. I get that he is grappling with, you know, all kinds of stuff. He's been very open with me about being hooked on harder stuff before I was born, flirting with alcoholism. He has sort of an addictive personality. Mm -hmm. It's not so much that it's just like any one thing. But my young life, I didn't know my dad smoked cigarettes until I turned eight. And I found out. And it was like right at that age where morality is super black and white. And I could not reconcile this thing that I knew of like smoking cigarettes is bad. Therefore, people who smoke cigarettes are bad people. Right. That's my dad, who is a good person because he's my dad, smoking a cigarette. I don't know what that means. That blew your little Yeah, mind. I just exploded. I went to yeah. pieces. And then from then on, like every year, there was the same conversation of you need to stop doing this. If I tell you enough, if I am crying enough, if I show you how much it hurts me, if I, you know, if I, if I, if I, I got friends, to, God, I found some heartbreaking shit at home of just contracts that I made him sign, like petitions that I got friends at school to sign. I got his bandmates to sign, you know, just all these people in our tight little community. And I remember one of his adult friends saying to me rather cavalierly at a, a party that we were at when I was maybe 11 or 12, he's never going to quit. And I burst into tears and had to leave the room like I couldn't keep it together because it felt so callous. It was like, I understand where he was coming from. Mm -hmm. You know, I understand that he was trying to say, this is nothing to do with you. Right. But it has always felt like something to do with me because when you're a kid, it's scary. And if it's not under your control, you know, if, if that behavior is continuing, it must be, it cannot be because your parent is a fallible Right. Point. That's not acceptable. Yeah. It has to be your fault. Right. And ugh, you can know that intellectually, but boy, the emotional stuff mm. is like just scraping congealed bacon grease off the soul. <laughs> I don't know. It's 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 kind of <laughs> like you know the subtext of of what you were asking from your dad was. I need you to be in my life as long as possible, and that guy was saying to you, he doesn't care. No. And, you know, and that his time was already limited and it's coming back around. He's got emphysema, you know, it's yeah. like, this is the thing that is damaging him and he just won't stop. And I, I met with a friend once who, um, was a grown up friend and I was probably, I don't know, maybe 17, no older than that, 20, maybe when we had this conversation and she asked me about my dad and his smoking. And I said, well, you know, he's trying to quit right now. And, his, oh, and she said, um, could you still love him if he never quit? And I started saying something and I blathered for a little bit. And she said, no, I'm going to ask you again. Could you still love him if he never stopped smoking? And I think about that all the time. And I am working on it. <laughs> it's not perfect. Um, and it just felt like somebody saying, you know, I don't care that this is more important to me than you. And it throws everything else into question. You know, I'm sure you've grappled with this, that like if someone says, I am here for you 100%, I will never leave you. And then it's like, just gonna, you know, 
really quick, slope off and do this thing, never around you because I'm ashamed of it. And I know he's talked to me intermittently, but still about the fear of letting me down, the fear of failure. And it led me to be absurdly straight-laced in high school, which is something I only Mm. came to later, that I was like trying to prove to him, look how easy it is to not smoke, to not drink, to not, you know, to follow the rules. And it wasn't, you know, leading by example didn't work, doing all this other stuff didn't work. And one of the things that this book kind of was, was me as an adult, or what passes for an adult, right, in being a human being, (laughs) (laughs) which I'm rapidly discovering is nothing different than being a child, but you have to pay more bills, um, was telling those things to myself, was acknowledging that I was not going to get the thing that I wanted from him, but he had given me the tools to give it to myself. Wow. That's pretty profound. I don't know that I've ever put it quite like that before, honestly, but I think that's that's kind of the long yeah. and the short of it is like this book is my life raft for yeah. your parents are not going to be here one day right. and like you need to know because we we do this all the time you know I've t- I talked with my therapist about this and we were talking about I think actually that moment when I found out my dad smoked and she said was there anything in that moment that an adult could have said to you that would have made it okay mm-hmm. and you know I thought about it and waffled about this and that and um, then she said well how about could, could you say that to yourself? Because a lot of the time, even now as adults, we're waiting as children for someone else to come along and tell us the thing that we want to hear mm-hmm. with all of our being. Or the thing we want to experience. Yes. Or to give us the some yeah, the, feeling that we think will connection. bring us peace and closure. Right. And then we won't experience any type of anxiety Ever or disappointment again. or pain again. <laughs> and that that is the... Uh, yeah. The, the thing that I think drives us all crazy. As you were sharing that about your dad having given you that to be able to do it for yourself, it reminds me of the the thing that, you know, you can feed somebody fish or you can teach them how to fish. And yeah. that's kind of like your dad tried to emulate self-love as best as somebody with demons that he had right. could. And I can tell you, as an addict, Addiction is bigger than any one human being, oh and God, whether yeah. it's cigarettes or what, whatever, and I'm not making excuses um, for your dad, but I understand what it's like to, to be an addict yeah. who intellectually knows one thing, but emotionally, it's just a field of 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 landmines that yeah. is so terrifying to to navigate that it's like there's it's a jekyll and hyde brain oh and absolutely it, and then it's it's so difficult um there's something else that about self-love oh fuck it's right on the tip of my tip of my brain um jekyll and hyde minefield uh, addiction Father. being bigger than everything else. Oh, uh, I experienced it with my dad yeah. growing up. When I was uh, 15, he learned that I had been getting high. Mm-hmm. And I got busted smoking weed before the on the morning of the first day of school sophomore year, before oh. the first class. Uh-huh. And... Um, he told me it was the saddest day of his life, except for the day that his father died. 
Whoa! And I said, I'll quit smoking pot if you quit smoking cigarettes. And he said, okay. And I was, six months later, I was keeping up my end of the bargain, and I was on my way to a concert with my neighbor, and he handed me a joint, and I said, no thanks. And he said, oh, are you still doing that thing with your dad? And I said, yeah. And he laughed. I said, why are you laughing? He said, your dad is on the side of your house every night smoking after dinner. And I said, give me that. Give me that joint. Give me <laughs> that beer. And and my <sighs> my dad did not make me an addict. I understand what it is like to have demons and feel like you are so uncomfortable in your skin and this thing that you're addicted to is the closest thing to a life raft that yeah. you can find in that moment. It's and just coping, in- coping, 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 coping. Yes. Yeah. And you intellectually know that it's not a true life raft, that mm. there is some other type of help, but it feels like you are going to just suffocate if you don't take this thing right now. But yeah. that doesn't make it any easier on that little child brain. But, I mean, I will say that talking to people who have been through it themselves, you know, close friends of mine who have quit smoking have said, you know, I still crave cigarettes every day. And I had that very same experience of like actively being in my own brain going, what are you doing? What are you doing? Stop lighting that cigarette, you know, and just hating myself and doing it anyway. And again, it's that thing where like, that should not be a comfort. It's kind of a comfort. Same with, you know, encountering um, addiction literature, which I haven't even scratched the surface of because it feels like a huge process of acceptance to kind of self-identify and say, you know, okay, this is an identity that my dad has. This is like a thing that is really impacting my life. And I bet you it's going to be that thing of shouting in the woods. I'm stealing that metaphor. That's so great because like there are so many other people who have dealt with this and to talk to other people and say, Oh, I thought it was just me. One of the biggest compliments I received about this book was that um, I, I was making it for me, you know, so adults were reading it, mostly people online, but someone got a copy and before they could read it, their kid stole it, this nine-year-old girl, took it out of the room, read it in one sitting, brought it back in and looked at her parent and said, I know that voice. I didn't think anybody else had that. And it's like, as adults, we know intellectually, maybe not emotionally, that other people have demons, right? right we kind of right. grasp that. And I forgot that, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know. You have no idea who else around you is grappling with that stuff. You certainly don't think your your parents have dark, no. dark thoughts or battles that, yeah. that uh, yeah. And I had a really um, a really formative experience in high school when I, we, we had, um, our theater department would have these little like councils. We would get together and have circles, you know, with a talking stick and like, it would be this safe space to, you know, commune about our feelings. Cause it was the theater department and we were mm-hmm. t- very touchy feely people. And we were sitting around a bonfire one night and there was a new girl who had come to the school and she, I was hardcore tomboy sort of hippie child. And she was very, um, she'd come from LA. She was super girly, you know, was in the theater department, but was new. And I was having all of these judgy, super like internalized misogyny thoughts about like, who is this bitch coming in here? I don't remember. And as we were going around the circle, I was disobeying the first rule, which is, you know, you speak from the heart and you listen from the heart. And I wasn't listening. And I was just kind of being in my thoughts. And the talking stick got to her 
And she just laid it out there and said, I'm so grateful that you guys made this space for me to come and join you. I know I'm new here. It's been really scary being at this school. I don't know anybody here. And I felt so lonely and judged. And she started crying. And I was just sitting there like, Lucy Bell, would you never judge anybody again in your life? You know, like you remember this moment for the rest of your days, because that is what is going on for everybody all the time. And we're so caught up worrying about what other people think of us. We don't stop and think that maybe they're experiencing the same thing. Yeah. That self, that self obsession and that self obsession, right? That's That's, not self reflection. (laughs) Right. And, and I think that's that's what, what we miss out on when we don't take that risk and we don't open up in a support group or express it through art or call up a, a, a close friend or the first hurdle, which to me is realizing that we mistake that inner critic for a sense of discipline. It's not. <sighs> Nobody yeah. has ever shamed themselves into being the person they want to be or the artist they want to be. Yeah. It is not. That is not the, the way to get there. Mm-hmm. But for the first four-fifths of my life, I thought that that was the road to success mm-hmm. was to listen to the mean voice. Yeah. And, and that, you know, it's, and it's dangerous. I hear people talk about grit, you know, like grit is the thing that's going to get you through and like, rah, rah, rah. and I like resilience a lot more. Resilience. That's, feels a lot more. Passion's a good one. Yep, absolutely. Um, but but, but <laughs> knowing when to let go of something yeah. and stop fighting is, there's a bravery in that. There's mm-hmm. an intelligence in, in that. And that doesn't mean the same thing as giving up. Um, No, permission is so different from abandonment, right? right. And saying, I'm giving myself permission. I'm making a conscious choice to take the day off, to take a vacation, you know, to not post something on social media, to trust that if I quit sharing for five minutes, Mm -hmm. people will still be there and they will still care when you come back. God, that's hard. (laughs) And I I think of people um, who enter into a profession with hopes of some type of outcome and then that doesn't happen and so they stop pursuing that but they think that it's a failure and it's only until years later that they find there was something that they learned in that quote-unquote failure Mm. that they drew upon later in their lives and which just to me points out another fallacy of the the critical voice in our head that tells us it's all in black and white thinking it's failure or accolades um it's a a waste of time or it's the only thing that matters yeah and false dichotomies yes and like zero sum thinking and all of this oh god and, and and i think that's what future tripping and ruminating on the past that's that's its home turf mm-hmm. is that kind of thinking and only in the present moment can we have those moments of of clarity um and i think it's because this sounds super woo woo but because that love and that connection is flowing through us and it there is a calming effect to it that that i think the brain just starts spinning a little slower mm-hmm. in a different part of the of the body or central nervous system or something is allowed to tap into much like meditation where the brain winds down and it, the deeper thoughts are in there. I feel like things that are of a more spiritual and meaningful nature are there in our brain or our soul or whatever, but we have to bring it into the present moment and unwind to the point where we can hear it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And, and making space to listen is so hard, especially now, you know, and we're, we have noisy, noisy brains all the time. Yes. Um, there's something that you said. And wanting to shame other people, I think is another impulse to avoid doing it, to avoid feeling what we want to feel. Um, when I find myself wanting to, uh, mock or shame people for their political beliefs on Twitter, I now know that that is a warning sign for me that something is going on inside me mm-hmm. that I don't like yeah. and that I'm projecting my own self-hatred or fear onto another person, which doesn't mean I shouldn't disagree with that person, but the manner in which I handle that, yes. that emotion Um and those, to me, are the gifts of self-reflection rather than self-obsession. Yeah. And that, being connected to that sort of slowing of the of the widening gyre or whatever is um, being part of something that, it's like that anxiety about reaching doesn't go away. You know, that anxiety about walking into a scary situation. The feeling that we have when we're young children is that the world is going to end if I go back to this place that hurts. And that's because when you're a kid, you know, the stakes are pretty high. You're small and vulnerable. And if evolution has not been kind to us, we are very, you know, small and squishy for a long time. And uh, I mean, this is my brand of woo is like, I think, you know, young, young, young trauma is, is a thing that stays with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, birth trauma and childhood trauma, like that sticks around and that imprints on who you are as a person. And something that I heard a lot about this project is that people were saying, wow, this is really uncommon. It's like, really? Cause I think everyone's kind of messed up in this way. And they said, no, 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 not that. The fact that you see this thing that hurts and you walk into it, mm-hmm. you don't walk around it. You don't say like, la la la, I'm going to go do something else now. Uh, I've done my fair share of that. You know, do I spend days doing that now? Still, of course, like I'm not in this weird state of Zen. That's acceptance. what Netflix is for. Absolutely. And knitting and uh, running and <laughs> talking to friends and checking Twitter and doing everything else but feeling your feelings. Um, but the the thing that I am finding is that when you have that rising feeling of panic, right, for you, maybe it's like anger and wanting to lash out. You know, for mm-hmm. me, it's like I start to get really uh, agitated. My stomach feels upset and I'm, I'm starting to notice. It's a noticing, again, self-reflection, mindfulness and thinking, okay, I can tell that I'm having this panic response and it's probably because I feel like there's a tiger and that I'm going to get eaten and, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to die. The world is going to end. But I know... And to be fair, you live in a zoo. Yes. So that is always a Absolutely. possibility. It's one of the hazards of being an adventure cartoonist is yes. that I will go over that waterfall. Yes. I will get smashed on the rocks. Why you chose to sublet that place in the lion cage. It was cheap. Me. Yeah. It was cheap. The rent was right. So in that moment, you're learning over and over and over again. It's the trust fall. And you're saying, okay, there's still going to be that moment of <gasps> like, right, you know, when you get in the cold pool, when you do whatever... And that's healthy. That's self-preservation. Right. And it's knowing the difference between, like you were saying, you know, misjudging and like oversharing with someone who's maybe not safe to talk to or like overstepping a boundary. It's it's knowing the difference between risk chasing to try and scratch an itch and just like that gentle sort of opening Mm -hmm. in a moment. And it means that I don't, feel zen per se but i trust more and it still hurts it maybe hurts more 
<laughs> but it beats the alternative of clinging to this safe little box of controlled anxiety and just letting it right. rule everything around right. me. Which is really not safe because yeah. because it's painful. Yeah, and it's brittle and it shatters, yes. you know, yeah. and then suddenly you're like naked baby bird on the ground and there's cats and cars and joggers and God knows yes. what else. And yeah. I forgot to show you the little bird nest and the... Uh, <gasps> On top of the light on the on the back porch. Oh, they like it there because it's warm. They're very yeah, it's very cute. Um, share another uh, thing that was a painful excavation. Ooh, uh, to do with the project. Yeah, and did we finish up what the, what the last one was that you shared? The, it was the smoking, Boy. right? Yeah, or, the smoking or, thing. Um, I was trying to I, I was trying to think of like a particular entry in the project that I could tie it back to, but that's I mean that's just something that I've been grappling with, and it's it's interesting that this project happened really at the start of this downward turn in my dad's health, and uh, it's funny that that entry actually about it'll never be what it was before. So my family lives in Ojai, and over Christmas, long after I'd drawn that comic, we were totally encircled by the Thomas fire, and like I spent you know, my, my Christmas break, uh, evacuated with my parents and our two geriatric cats, like traveling all over California, trying to escape these fires. And, um, I really, when we moved, when I was two and a half, uh, I remember it and it was like my whole world was being dismantled. And when we moved to the new house, uh, I became really set in my ways about everything had to stay the same. You know, it was like, I did not want any more change. And so I wrote, like, no, my house go away on all the doors when I could hold a pencil. And when my parents were thinking about building an addition onto the house that would have meant chopping down my tree that I had yes. decided was my privet tree, I opened the cabinet probably when I was like six or seven and looked at the blueprints and thought to myself, if I set fire to these, they will not take my tree away. Wow. You know, like I could stop this from happening. Wow. Which, so of course, I mean, well, actually, I don't know. They were hand drafted blueprints. So, like, maybe. <laughs> So that means you started the Thomas fire. It was actually me. My bad. No. Um, God, there was a terrible fire when I was in high school that was started by two kids setting off fireworks in someone's mailbox. And they were the chief of the fire department's son, who was friends with the chief of the police department's son. Oh, man. And like, I don't even know what happened to those boys, but wow, I would not have wanted to be them. That was that was another bad one. I was probably 16 when that fire happened. But anyway, it's it's interesting to go back to the book now because that childhood fixation on like things have to stay the same. It's been a real constant in my life that I really struggle with wanting this consistency and growing older, you know, that's what life is is learning to grapple with change and it's the only constant and all of those platitudes are really true. Yeah. And so I've been really coming to grips with uh, the fact that I'm this weird blend of being a total homebody and loving to nest and liking to have my things and everything to be safe and wanting to travel all the time and feeling like uh, I'm creating a safety net for myself where if I can land in any city in the United States and say, I'm going to do a tour stop here, who can house me? Who can give me a ride? Who's going to feed me? You know, where am I going to go? And every place that I've gone on this tour, I've found people. And every time that happens, I feel a little safer because I'm kind of venturing out from my like safe nest of consistency. And it's weird to get older and go back to my parents' house and try to help them pull it out of being this um, dump in some ways. Like we didn't have the money to fix it up for a long time. Mm -hmm. 
and we also, you know, I have a dad who lived through a war and was born in 1939, and like he's kind of a hoarder, and my mom's uh, kind of a hoarder in a different way, and I'm really excited to listen to that episode that just came out about hoarding because <laughs> <laughs> that's some relevant stuff. And when I was a kid, like the mess was part of the stability. And yes. so, you know, you couldn't touch any of that because that was the landscape and that was what made home That home. was the tree. <laughs> yeah, that was my tree, right? Oh, if Paul, my... stop with the metaphors for <laughs> the love of God. If my tree was like, you know, checkbooks from 1982 of... <laughs> and like a huge pile of newspapers with no relevance to our family whatsoever and got so many pens, I won't, you would not believe the Tupperware full of Sharpie pens that I have. Um and that's something that's been really sad is like my dad's super creative. When, one of my earliest drawing memories is he would make uh, coloring books for me. He would like draw full sketchbooks of line art for me to color in these beautiful mm. abstract things. And he started making bookmarks that he would color in and make these crazy collage things. And he would go Xerox them at the business center and laminate them and put tassels on them and quotes on the back. And it was this lovely thing. It's like a really sweet thing if you say it to people. And over time, I've watched as he will go and he'll draw something and then compulsively go make 20 photocopies of it and cut them all out meticulously and then bring them home and put them in a pile and then do the same thing the next day and the same thing the next day and the same thing the next day. And it's this avalanche. And again, it's this dichotomy of like, this is a beautiful thing. If you tell somebody, my dad sends me something in the mail every day and they go, oh my gosh, that's so sweet. And it is really sweet, and I know it's his way of trying to connect with me, and also, it's heartbreaking. Every day, I get a reminder that he's in the grip of this compulsion. And it's a compulsion that says, I love you, I love you, I love you. But the photocopying is almost like it's he's doing it with everything now, like photos of himself that he finds from when he was younger. And it feels so poignant because it's, and it makes me think about, you know, printing 4,000 books. And it's like, don't forget me. Like, don't forget that I was here. Yeah. Remember that I performed and was loved and was valued. And that's a big question, I think, for doing a project like this is it changed the way that I ended the, the drawing project. You know, it was going to be about I have a demon. My demon has a demon. That demon has a demon. That demon has a demon. And that was going to be this. I, I think that's self-obsessive. And what ended up happening was self-reflective and it was communally reflective in that so many other people told me that this was what they were dealing with as well, that I ended up drawing a huge crowd of people who had sent me photos from Twitter into the last page of the book. And oh, they're wow. all holding demons. Oh, wow. And my demon's thrown a tantrum and is like, I don't, yeah. I think your art's useless. It's not going <laughs> to do anything. And I'm like, come here, I got a surprise for you. And I open the door and here are all these people standing at my door for, with, you know, wow. their demons. And I was sobbing when I drew it, and I was so scared to post it, you know, because I thought, like, I've got to really stick this landing. This is three and a half months these people have been here. And I was just physically, like, shaking, you know, pressing the button, like, oh, my God. And I launched the Kickstarter at the same time, so it was like, oh, God, double trouble. And all these tweets started coming in from people just saying, you know, I'm crying. You did it. Like, wow. you did it. You did it. You did it. Like, this is perfect. This is exactly wow. what we needed. <sighs> <laughs> it was probably the scariest creative thing I've ever done. You know, I was also thinking as you were talking about one of the things you love about going on the road is, um, you know, when you're able to stay with somebody and stuff, mm -hmm. stuff like that. And it just occurred to me that it's a confirmation that there is love. 
yes. in the world. And that's what it, I say at the events, too, is like there is value, hopefully for you, not just for me, in sitting in a room with 25 other strangers and recognizing that these people all showed up because they are interested in being vulnerable and that that still exists. And God, the last two years are doing their worst to just like beat it out of us and say, you know, you're alone. Nobody cares. It's only going to get worse. Right. And we can't have that right now. And it's one of those times when like, I didn't grow up in a religious family, but church is on to something like being in a room with a lot of people who want to learn how to be better people to each other. There's an energy there. There is an energy there. And it really is like, God, we got to come up with something fast. Yes. And it's the, you know, it's podcasts maybe. Yes. <laughs> and, it's, and it's funny because it comes right back around to the thing that corrodes it is judgment, whether it's in our head or the church, all of a sudden going from spreading love to demonizing people in this group. Right, yeah. 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 And I think it's that self-judgment that I see preclude people. I've had people tell me, um, every tour stop, I don't know if you have this with gigs, but like, it feels like I'm throwing a birthday party and I'm afraid nobody's going to come. Yes. And every time, you know, and I try to remind myself that I set my bar really reasonably for this tour and said, look, it's a success if one other person comes because the fewer the people, the deeper the conversation you can have. Wow, you're full of yourself. One person, huh? I know, right? I'm shooting big here. Eight <laughs> years in the business and like I've, I think maybe I can get one person. Maybe like an eight-year-old. Um, <laughs> but it, it's been really uh, valuable because like those people who come, you know, they're I'm, – I'm losing my train of thought for what I was going to say at the end of that sentence. Oh, heck. Um Welcome okay. to my world. <laughs> we were talking about venues and people showing up and church and... Judgment. Judgment, yeah. I've had people tell me, um, I almost didn't come tonight because my inner critic told me that you didn't need me. It would be too busy. Like, nobody would miss me if I wasn't here. She probably doesn't want to see me. You know, like, I don't yes. belong here. Having no idea that you... That they might have made your night oh absolutely like and and every time that's what i try to tell people is like please i i need you to be here like this is a two-way street it doesn't work if we're not here together and i mean that's it's kind of what i was driving at with my dad and his photocopies and me sharing stuff online is that there are some artists who would say like wow that's really like do you have to share every single entry as it comes out couldn't you just wait and release it as a book and I think there's a temporal aspect to it that's really important. And, and people have brought this up about television, that the distinction between watching a show every week on network television and like it stays with you for however long a show runs, you know, several months of your mm -hmm. life versus getting it all on Netflix in one fell swoop and binging it. They both have pros and cons, but there's something about the temporality of a project being with you over time. And I'm mm -hmm. sure your listeners experience this, that they can tune yes. in and have this place that they go, this waiting room, right? Yeah. yeah. And it, it cues them into a particular way of thinking. And it gives them permission to just for a minute inhabit this space where they understand that they are also in that forest shouting and everyone else is there. Yeah. What, a, what a great note to, uh, to end on. Uh, although there's actually, which is one other thing I wanted to, a thought that I had as we were talking about yeah. judgment is I think one of the fallacies is that we... We tell ourselves, whether consciously or subconsciously, that if we were to stop judging things, that we would be, the, we wouldn't be safe. But mm -hmm. judgment isn't necessary to have a sense of discretion. Um, there's, 
there's discretion and then there's judgment. Mm-hmm. And to me, it, judgment is kind of discretion uh, with, with si- prejudice. sickness. Yeah. With prejudice. Absolutely. And it. it's funny because we say good judgment, right? right? And I think discretion, kind of like um, resilience is like a better. Yes. <laughs> Let's just start that right now. Yes. Judgment can have love mm-hmm. in it um, and judgment can have hate in it. And yeah. uh, now I'm uh, feeling like a jackass. I'm judging myself. <laughs> For saying that, because I, f- I feel like I'm uh, talking down uh, to people and talking too much, and that we had a great moment to end on, and I fucked it up uh, because I had to run my mouth because I was afraid that if everybody didn't know every single thing, every single thought in my head, that I'm invisible. Let's end on that beautiful note. Here's to unperfect endings. Unperfect, imperfect. Shit. Where can where can people uh, find you? Um, they can find me. Uh, my website is lucybellwood.com, L-U-C-Y-B-E-L-L-W-O-O-D. And which uh, is the most recent book that they can get? So 100 Demon Dialogues is the book that I've been talking about the most. Um, and that's numeral 100 Demon Dialogues with a U-E-S, because English parents and I didn't know mm. better, uh, .com. And you can also find it on my website. And I'm at Lou on Twitter and Instagram and all those other social media places that I'm trying to do less of. <laughs> and uh, we'll put links to all this stuff. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you so much. What a pleasure to talk to. Um, and be sure to check out her book. It's it's really great. Uh, before I take it out with some surveys, uh, I want to remind you guys there's a bunch of different ways you can support the podcast, and I list them all under the show notes of um, a lot of the recent episodes. You can support us financially, which we really need. Um, you know, we do have advertise, advertisers on here, but that alone does not keep the show going. And uh, Patreon is a really, really great way to help uh, keep the show afloat. Uh, you can subscribe, uh, become a monthly donor for as little as a dollar a month. And uh, sometimes I'll give freebies out or you can enter into a drawing for uh, stuff that I'll raffle off. Uh, you can also do a one-time or be- become a monthly donor through PayPal as well. And you can support the show non-financially by giving us a good rating on iTunes, writing something nice about it, or spreading the word through social media. And there's all different kinds of ways. So all of them are very, very much appreciated. I want to give a shout out to our sponsor, uh, Madison Reed. Madison Reed is hair color reinvented, giving you gorgeous salon quality color delivered to your door for less than $25. It's crafted in Italy by master colorists. Madison Reed is professional hair color you can easily do at home. It's multi-tonal, ammonia-free, and made with ingredients you can feel good about. Uh, I had a listener named Kat. Uh, she wrote to me and said that she really enjoyed using Madison Reed. And I said, well, can you give me some detailed uh, comments on your experience? And she wrote back. She said, ordering was pretty easy. The package arrived fairly promptly for my country living zip code. Uh, You open the box. It's a lovely assembly of products presented in a very contemporary and appealing way. It was so cute. I took a picture. Instructions were easy to follow. And the second pair of gloves for rinsing is genius. The cap was also appreciated since the set time is 45 minutes. So I didn't have to worry about color transfer while doing a few things around the house to pass the time. The color itself was easy to mix and apply. I'm particularly sensitive to strong chemical odors and was surprised by the pleasant fragrance. 
The color is rich with good depth and coverage on those stubborn grays. I would suggest ordering two kits if you have longer hair. It made my hair actually feel healthier, thick, and smooth. Uh, many thanks, Paul and Madison Reed. So, there you have it. Um, find your perfect shade from Madison Reed. Get an expert color consultation or take the color quiz at madison-reed.com. You guys get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit with code MENTAL. That's code MENTAL at madison-reed.com. I want to also give a shout out to a new podcast that Dr. Phil has called Fill in the Blanks. And Fill in the Blanks shows you a whole new side of Dr. Phil. These are all new, unscripted, no-holds-barred conversations with celebrities and experts. Phil talks to people like Vivica Fox, Dak Shepard, Kathy Bates, Jay Leno, and Steve Harvey, plus experts like neurosurgeons and lie spotters. Phil's other goal is to share tips that apply to real life, like the 10 things you need to do if your life gets in crisis, or what do you do if you go into your kid's room and you find drugs in their sock drawer. So Dr. Phil's podcast, Phil in the Blanks, is out now. That's P-H-I-L in the Blanks. Listen on your favorite podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Let's get to some surveys. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself my puppy's armchair. And she writes, This morning in therapy, I realized that even though my childhood was a perfect dream, and I, I love this one too because it's so fitting after listening to the episode with Lucy and her talking about her fear of losing her dad. Uh, this morning in therapy, I realized that even though my childhood was a perfect dream and I love my entire family so much, that perfection has still managed to slam me with a huge problem, chronophobia. My life has been so amazing thus far that I stay up all night sobbing about how quickly time is passing, how I can never get my youth back, and how I'll wake up one morning with dead parents with no way of ever revisiting the loved-filled days of my childhood. That feeling, like when you go back to your hometown and you realize you will never have those memories again, you will never get to experience those exciting moments or that group of friends all together in the same place. There is a certain sadness to that. Uh, Continuing, later this evening after my appointment, my mom called me to say, hey honey, no need to worry, but your dad and I are revising our will and we need to have a little meeting with you and your brothers to figure it all out. Just uh, Just to be prepared and all. Mom, you nurturing, compassionate, selfless bitch. It's not rare that we get a survey on here where the parents are just uh, doing their job. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Harry. He is 18. He's gay. He was raised in a stable and safe environment, never been sexually abused, not sure if he has been physically or emotionally abused. Uh, My parents, especially my dad, would freeze up and almost start blanking me halfway through a conversation without telling me what I did or said to upset them. I would feel sick with anxiety and I would beg them to talk uh, to me or tell me how I could make it up to them, but they would shake their head and say something like, I give up. 
I am so sensitive to any kind of dispute and often don't feel like I'm entitled to my emotions, like anger or frustration. You know, that, that to me is a form of abuse. You're trying to communicate with your parent. I mean, that is like a boilerplate baseline need between a parent and a child is guidance and communication and feedback, especially when the kid's asking for it. Uh, darkest thoughts. I sometimes wish my whole family would die so I wouldn't be afraid to kill myself if I got to that place again. Well, you're 18 now, so you don't owe your parents anything. If you are not getting your baseline relationship needs met by your parents, find relationships that do fill your emotional needs outside of your family. Um... Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having sex with someone who insists they're straight. Uh, it makes me feel weird writing that because it could spawn no emotional connection. And it's a situation I'd probably apologize afterwards. But isn't that most of our fantasies anyway? It's something that we're kind of morally opposed to or ashamed of or it's attached to some type of trauma or anxiety or worry often related to childhood. So, dude, you know, find a consenting partner and role play and indulge in it in a, in a consenting way with someone, and it can bring you closer to them. So don't shame yourself. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my parents to stop making any feelings I have about them, like when I confide in them and they feel attacked because it's a burden on them. Your, your parents sound really narcissistic. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for to get over my problems with food? Well, I have the feeling that your problems with food are directly related to you feeling a lack of control in your relationship with your parents because you are not taking the, the, uh, the power that is there to advocate for yourself and to say, hey, this is not acceptable. Uh, he's never shared these things with others, and after writing these things down, it feels cathartic. Um, you sound like an awesome, awesome, sensitive guy who was shamed for being sensitive. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself lost in loneliness. She is uh, identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s. She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I'm not even really sure if something happened. I can remember being interested in sex at a very young age. I began to masturbate at probably seven years old. I can remember fantasizing as a child about sex that involved hurting boys or men. I wondered why I would have such violent sexual fantasies at such a young age, but can't remember anything ever happening. When I was in college in a conversation with my mother, she mentioned that when I was around three years old, whenever I saw a particular male member of her Sunday school class and friend group, I would always take off my pants and my diaper. I wonder if something could have happened when I was very young and can't remember it that could have triggered these events and fantasies. Uh, she's not sure if she's ever been 
physically or emotionally abused. Uh, I'm not sure if I would call it emotional abuse, but I think that my mother emotionally neglected me throughout my childhood. She suffers from chronic back pain, and ever since her injury when I was eight years old, I became the mother figure in our family. I would take care of my brother and take care of her. My father was present and very loving, but was often busy taking care of my mother. Uh, Our family system values the, quote, martyr mommy. The expectation is that mother will give everything she can to take care of everyone else in the family. Because of my mother's physical inability to do this, I was expected to become the martyr mommy at age eight. You know, whatever your parents' intent, it doesn't really matter. It's, It's how that made you feel and what needs you didn't get met as a child and finding a way to go back and meet those yourself. That's that's what matters. And you're not making too big of a deal of it. That's a huge piece for a kid to miss out on. I mean, you're missing being a kid. That's huge. Uh, my brother and I also spent a lot of time walking on eggshells around my mother because if she was having a bad pain day, she would snap at us for minor things. My mother also suffers from some OCD, and I think that one of her obsessions is that my brother or I am gay, and her compulsion was to ask constantly about our sexuality. Once in middle school, she took me to buy new shoes, and I picked out some Converse Chuck Taylor All-Star sneakers. She said to me, back when I was in school, if we saw a girl wearing shoes like that, we would call her a dyke. She thought this was hilarious and repeated her joke to my grandmother the next time we visited and I showed off my new shoes. My mother was never very open about her emotions and I don't feel comfortable sharing my feelings with her. That is definitely a big missing piece that I I think would be healthy to process with a therapist or support group or something. But uh, any positive experiences with the people who abused you? Uh, because of my mother's chronic pain, I understand that she has been through a lot. I can tell that sometimes she is really trying her best to be there for my brother and I, and I appreciate her effort. Yes, and that is a separate issue from you having not gotten things. Uh, darkest thoughts. I found out I was attracted to women when I fell in love with my best friend in grad school. She's getting married this fall, and I sometimes fantasize that they will call it off and she will come to me and apologize for leading me on and breaking my heart when I revealed my feelings to her, and then she and I would be together. I also often fantasize about being in a car wreck or a plane crash, being mugged or raped. I want to wake up in a hospital and see this girl there for me, caring for me. I fantasize about her holding my hand and kissing me on the forehead, telling me she is there for me. You know, it's interesting that the things that you fantasize about this person fulfilling in you are the very things that you didn't get from your mom. You know, this, this fantasy... Uh, Let me read again and just imagine that substitute your mom. You know, take the, obviously the sex part out of it, but I fantasize about being in a car wreck or a plane crash, being mugged or raped. I want to wake up in a hospital and see this person there for me, caring for me. I fantasize about her holding my hand and kissing me on the forehead, telling me she is there for me, which to me tells me the work to work on is is healing that stuff 
from childhood. Darkest Secrets. I recently drunkenly sexted with a random guy I met on the internet. It was exciting and really turned me on, but the next day, when I was sober, I realized I had no idea who he was or how old he was, and I had a panic attack. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to be held down and fucked by a bunch of guys one after another. I want to be blindfolded and totally at their mercy. As I write this, I'm getting turned on just thinking about it. I feel like a terrible person for fantasize, fantasizing about being taken advantage of and used. I sound like a broken record, but it's just a fantasy. And it's, if you let it, just be a fantasy, it can be so fucking hot. And so it's a form of self-love. And there's nothing wrong with your fantasy. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my best friend that I am still in love with her and that I'm not sure I want to go to her wedding, much less sing a song during the service. I'm afraid to tell her because if I'm afraid... It will be the end of our friendship, and I am so lonely and without friends, I can't bear the idea of losing one of my three real friends. What, if anything, do you wish for? I just wish to feel normal and not depressed or anxious. I just want to wake up and not be worried or miserable. I wish I had someone who really, truly cared for me who I could trust to share my feelings with. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared with a few friends that I want to feel normal and not depressed or anxious. They seem to want to be there for me, but they offer a lot of solutions that don't work or make sense, and that makes me frustrated or angry. With a wound as big as what you have, there is nothing that somebody can say that is going to heal that wound. The only way to heal wounds that big is to process it over months and years through self-care and and support with people who understand what it is that you're feeling. How do you feel after writing these things down? I kind of feel good writing these things down, but I also feel sad, hurt, lonely, and abandoned. And this is going to sound fucked up, but that's great because instead of running from that feeling, trying to find somebody else to take that feeling away, process it, cry about it, rage about it, All of those feelings are trapped in there and they are fucking driving the bus until we heal. You know, I often say our feelings aren't going to kill us, but running from them might. And I say it while I'm wearing a top hat and I'm doing air quotes. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I know it doesn't help to hear from a stranger that you aren't alone. I don't know. I don't think anyone has ever said anything to me that makes me feel better, so I don't know what to say to someone else. Sometimes a hug or just listening can be like the most powerful thing. Thank you for that. It was a really important survey. This is a happy moment, and this was filled out by a woman who calls herself Min's Anxious Brain. Sorry if this is too long. She writes, over the holidays, I spent some time with my uncle, who is recently, uh, who is, who has been recently widowed. We lost my aunt last year to breast cancer. 
This particular uncle and I have been building a more solid relationship in the last two to three years, and we have a special bond in that we both have similar temperaments. We both have socially awkward tendencies, and we're both artists. He also happens to be the brother of my estranged father and one of the only family members on that side I have a relationship with. I went to his house on Christmas Eve with my partner, and my cousins were there as well. It honestly has been feeling very empty, though I noticed that my uncle had done a lot to the house. He made some of his walls into huge murals of photographs. Uh, He was planning on... He was planning on changing uh, the use of every room, where the kitchen was now, the dining room would be, etc., etc. All the changes made me feel uncomfortable. I felt like I could feel his loneliness welling up in my chest, but I really tried to be positive so we could all be uplifted. Um, We got on talking about my extended family. This always puts me on edge. I'm not in contact with most of my direct or distant family right now. This is for a lot of reasons. But to put it shortly, they do not treat me with respect or know how to give me love. I was emotionally abused and neglected by them since my mom died when I was 15, probably before that as well, and have been prioritizing my well-being, which resulted in distance from them. Super high five on that. I knew my uncle meant well with what he was asking, but having it Having to bring up one traumatic experience after another, one hurtful instance after another, it eventually got to me. I felt like I was being pestered and judged for cutting off ties with some people, and I broke down crying from the pressure. This isn't something I've ever done in front of my uncle. I find it difficult and often humiliating to be emotionally vulnerable in front of others, but truly, I'm at a point in my life where I don't inhibit myself anymore, so I cried. And while I cried, I described out loud to him what I was feeling and what my view of the situation was. The entire time, he showed genuine concern and voiced that he wanted to hear what happened so that he could be aware of how he came off and fixed the issue. I just kept letting the energy run through me. And even though I still felt some guilt in the fact that I was taking up space to cry. When my partner and I got into the car later, he looked at me and said, I'm so proud of you. You have no idea how much impact you have on others. I was a little surprised. He then pointed out to me that as soon as I let myself be vulnerable, my uncle started opening up. He started telling me about his fears, the isolation he's facing, and he was being more candid in the conversation. I was pretty caught up with anxiety while I was there, and I barely noticed. All in all, it was a beautiful experience that encouraged me to keep being emotionally open. It can melt away barriers just to look at someone who is emoting freely and remember that we are all human and we all deserve to take up that space. I still struggle with the notion that I am too sensitive and too soft, but I'm really proud of my ability to communicate with others and bring out softness and truth in them. That is awesome. That is a template for growth. And it just fucking fires me up. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Daddy Issues 101. She is 19. Uh, She was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, I would say more than that after after having read this. Uh, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Um, 
I met my father for the first time when I was 19, and after three weeks of living together, we had sex. He didn't have to force me or anything, but I feel like this will lead to a lot of daddy issues in the future. Um, people who might be shocked by reading this, there was actually a, an episode, I think it was on Oprah, about this dynamic that when people meet their estranged parent or their estranged child for the first time, and they're both adults, they it is not uncommon for them to turn it into a romantic relationship. I don't know if that's the right word, but the chemicals apparently are so strong that it it can lead to that. So um, I felt like I needed to mention that, you know, and I'm not a therapist, so I don't know what the repercussions are of having done this or anything beyond that. Uh, she's been emotionally abused, narcissistic mother who became disabled later in life, and she kept trying to keep me living at home, but also had no one to lash her emotions out at except me. She kept me from my father and his side of the family. A lot of self-doubt and shame surrounding anything uh, dealing with greed. Like, I can't bring myself to ask for anything, and if I do, I feel like crying and feel selfish. Um, any positive experiences with her? She's my mom. That's pretty much it. So, no. Darkest thoughts. She constantly threatens suicide, and sometimes I wonder what it would be like if she did it. That is one of the most abusive things you can do to a child. It is... You would be removed from the home if child services became aware that a parent was threatening to kill themselves in front of a child. As for my father, I'm scared that I like it because right now I'm just doing it because otherwise he pouts and he is very unpleasant to be around. That is not good. That is not good. He is abusing his power as a father. And do not keep doing it because he's pouting. Uh, my father was in prison for 10 years for molesting my two younger siblings, and sometimes I resent them for speaking up because it meant I didn't get a father figure in my life and felt like the reject child. Imagine being the offspring of someone who hurt your siblings. It's not a good feeling. Darkest secrets. I think having sex with my father takes the cake. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Watching people pee, especially where they aren't supposed to, like in a car, a carpeted floor, a dresser drawer full of clothes, and watching guys sucking themselves. It makes me feel really gross, and why can't I just like normal, story-driven porn? Um, I would say because most of it's awful, and most of us have some quirk or something that's specific um, and if you ever find something that's specific to what your turn on is it's really powerful you know whether or not it's compulsive behavior is another story entirely but uh, I don't and she writes I don't like thinking of myself as a sexual being 
What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my dad that I dislike his girlfriend. She can't support herself. He supports her. Therefore, I have to help him. I have to help support him. You do not have to help support him. He is your father. And anyway, continuing. He always says he wants her business to be a job and not just a hobby and is willing to put himself into debt for it. Yet I work 50 to 6 hour 50 to 60 hour weeks at 19 on an assembly line and I get no pity. You're not going to get it from your dad. Your dad is a manipulative narcissistic predator. What, if anything, do you wish for, for financial stability so that I can feel no or at least less guilt about needing therapy? Right now, I have no work benefits, so I am unmedicated, untreated, and the only thing that keeps me from snapping and hitting someone or impulsively quitting is my strategically hidden earbud with which I listen to podcasts and audiobooks. Well, if you are listening to this, stop giving your dad money and use that money for therapy. If you share these things with others, I told one of my best friends in college and she wanted so desperately to have him put away again. She used to call him dad too, but now they despise each other. How do you feel after writing these things down? Very vulnerable. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Maybe someday we'll get the help that we need, and even though neither of us believe it in this moment, we do deserve to be better. Fuck, I don't even believe myself when I say that. It's such a foreign concept when we haven't had our needs met as kids to consider meeting them as an adult, especially if it means letting someone down who we feel like we need. But you don't need him. You don't need his love. You don't need your mother's love now that you're 19. You did as a kid. But it's time to find love somewhere somewhere else, starting, in my opinion, with platonic love, support group friends, people who can have a supportive, constructive dialogue about this heavy, heavy shit that you went through and are going through. This is not a casual, I'm going to bring it up, you know, in between pitchers of beer at a bar. My opinion. Not a therapist, but I did cook chicken on basic cable for a lengthy stretch. And finally, this is a happy moment that I just fucking love. Oh, do I love it. It's filled out by a woman who calls herself Garlic Parm Butter. And she writes, The recent episode with Chell Bjorgen made me want to share my own experience with pizza delivery. After four years of college, I entered the field I had studied only to realize I hated it and had no aptitude for it. I was fired from my first job after only a few months, which left me in a dark place, totally directionless, uncertain, and deeply discouraged by my wasted time, effort, and money. It felt like an insurmountable failure. I got a job delivering pizza to pay the bills. It was fast-paced and kept me engaged and stimulated in a way I hadn't been at my other job. I was amazed to actually feel good at something again. Many of these people I worked with were kind, fascinating, and weird. I felt like 
I'd finally found my people. I discovered audiobooks, which kept me entertained through long shifts and allowed me to listen to all the books I hadn't had time to read because I was too busy with school. Harry Potter, Stephen King, Dune, Game of Thrones. The flexible schedule allowed me to take classes part-time, and over the next four years, I got an associate's degree in a new field in which I'm now doing well. This really isn't a specific happy moment, but I had so many happy moments at this job, listening to hundreds of frogs making noise in a neighborhood retention pond late at night, wandering around apartment complexes that smelled weirdly nice due to the laundry exhaust, feeding a pepperoni to a fox in the road from my own pizza, don't worry, watching yards and porches explode with plants in the spring driving with the windows down on a warm, breezy day, looking at Christmas lights in winter, big tips during snowstorms, starting off a long shift with a hot coffee and a new audiobook, making dick-shaped breadsticks and filling them with garlic butter, shooting the shit with fellow delivery drivers about aliens and retro anime porn and busted breast implants while mopping the store on a closing shift even folding thousands of cardboard pizza boxes and being pissed off at bad tippers felt like happy moments when I look back on them. When I first started, I was ashamed and felt like my failure had, quote, reduced me to delivering pizza. But it ended up being very fulfilling and a pathway to better things. I can't add a single thing to that because that is just... Hall of Fame beautiful. If you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that you are not alone. We are all connected. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.